from Hayama, Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Bruce Hood will join us to discuss Super Sense. So, stay tuned for all this. Plus the Rocketron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok Science Show. Science Show. Well, we all struggle to make sense of the world around us, but sometimes our model of the world leads us to believe something completely irrational. What is it about the brain that leads us to believe in the unbelievable? Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Professor Bruce Hood. Professor Hood is the director of the Bristol Cognitive Development Center in the Experimental Psychology Department at the University of Bristol. He was formerly a faculty member at Harvard University, recipient of numerous honors, awards, and grants, and author of numerous research articles and popular works on the subject. His new book, Super Sense, Why We Believe in the Unbelievable, explores this topic for a general audience. Uh, Dr. Hood, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. You're welcome. Uh, well, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program. How common are uh, supernatural beliefs? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Most of us recognize the normal ones, you know, four-leaf clovers and black cats and uh, not walking underneath ladders. But actually, there's a whole realm of supernatural beliefs that most people don't immediately recognize them as being supernatural. So the one I like, the most common one, is most people think they can tell when they're being watched from behind. About nine out of every ten people think that they can detect someone staring at them from behind, even though there's no way they could possibly actually see them. It's just this sense, this feeling that they're being observed. And in fact, it's so common, people don't even recognize that as being anything uh, untoward. But in terms of this sort of the more familiar beliefs, things like ghosts, haunted houses, telepathy, precognition, all those things, approximately three out of every four Americans has at least one belief in that kind of supernatural. And if you open it up, to religious beliefs, then obviously in the U.S., it's approximately not a, 9 out of 10 Americans uh, are religious. So uh, it really depends on how you phrase the question, but the truth is the majority of, a majority of us have some, at least some supernatural belief. And, and this is kind of fascinating because most of us would like to believe that we are, in a sense, very rational beings. Mm. Yeah, I, I think we're fooling ourselves all the time. Uh, whenever I speak to rationalists or atheists, everyone is under this impression that they're making their judgments based on reason. I mean, this is the whole point. No one really thinks they're unreasonable. We all like to believe that when we're coming up with our decisions, we're evaluating the evidence, weighing up the pros and cons, and then making a balanced decision. But the thing about psychology, and this is my interest, and for a lot of other people who work in this area, the one thing that we do know about uh, our minds is that very often the, the processes which lead us to our decisions are not necessarily under any free will or conscious control. So what might feel like a kind of well-thought-through line of argument is often uh, the result of a whole lot of biases and unconscious processes. And it's often e easy to see these sorts of biases and processes in other people, yet uh, seeing them in themselves is actually quite, quite <laughs> difficult, right? <laughs> that's exactly the point. That's why people find it so remarkable that anyone could hold a belief. That's, that's why we slap our foreheads and say, you know, I just don't get this guy. How could he possibly think like that? But we all uh, have varying degrees of this. Some of us are more inclined than others. Uh, and some of us are, are just a little bit, we would like to think ourselves more rational. But I think within all of us, there's this uh, tendency or this possibility to, to entertain the supernatural. 
So in your book, you actually argue that a lot of this is largely biological developmental in the brain and as mm. seen very early on in childhood. Well, one thing we do know is, and this is where I'm coming from as a scientist, is that we study very, very young children. In fact, we study them as, as young as infants. And we know that all the experimental data shows that the very young babies are figuring out the world. They're thinking about the physical nature of the world. They're thinking about the living aspects of the world, you know, animals being different to inanimate things. And certainly by the end of the first year, they're starting to attribute the possibility that other people have minds. So they have a, a naive physics, they have a naive biology, and they also have a naive psychology. Now, the important thing about this is that no one's telling them how to do this, just what they do naturally. So we call this intuitive reasoning, which sounds a little bit like a, an oxymoron, but it is intuitive in the sense that no one's telling them how to do it, it's happening spontaneously. And it is reasoning because it does allow them to actually make predictions. So the way that we actually do these sorts of experiments, I'm sure some of your listeners are wondering, you know, how can you possibly study what a, an infant knows, is that, for example, we might show them a series of magic tricks where you know, maybe a, an object appears to move through a solid wall or it um, jumps from one location to the next. And just like you and I, babies look longer at these events. They're surprised. And surprise, uh, looking longer, tells us that somewhere in their little minds, somehow they're working out that there's been a violation going on. So using that basic paradigm, you can start to use that technique to ask all sorts of questions. But by the time they're about two to three years of age, then you can start to elicit some answers and question, question what they're thinking. And we've known for quite a while now that very young preschool children have some very strange notions about the world. And when you systematically investigate these sorts of notions, you find all the evidence that they're kind of developing these naive theories to explain what they can't directly perceive. And the thesis of the book is that this natural process of understanding the world sometimes leads to misconceptions. Maybe my toys do move around at night. Maybe my teddy bear does get lonely at night. And these things, of course, would not be natural. You know, if an inanimate object could have feelings, that would be misappropriating a psychological thing into an inanimate object, a physical thing. So this is what I'm suggesting in the book, is that many of the aspects of adult supernatural beliefs are really the remnants of misconceptions that emerge spontaneously in children. Now, culture, of course, builds upon these things, and there's a lot of influence from television and media and storytelling. But the reason that they work so well, I think, is because they resonate with these kind of notions that there are things in the world that can't be explained. There are these hidden dimensions. And even with education, you argue, it's very hard to remove these very sort of deep-rooted beliefs that are formed in childhood. Yeah, that's an exciting question because there's a, a recent workout in a number of uh, different laboratories approaching it from a different number of ways have shown that adults will revert back to their childish uh, misconceptions if you put them under stress. So if you uh, give them uh, tasks which overload their capacity to think logically, we talk about taxing their executive functions. These are the tasks that the frontal parts of our brain do. If you put them under a lot of time pressure or a lot of workload, then they start reverting back to the sort of misconceptions that children will typically say. And interestingly, also in cases where there is a degree of dementia, we see this in the emergence or the onset of Alzheimer's patients. They too, before they reach their really critically impaired situation, they too will start to revert back to sort of explanations or accounts which are effectively the way that preschool children reason as well. So I don't think these things ever go away. I think what happens is that you're born with these intuitive reasoning mechanisms which kind of figure out the, the basics of the world. This allows you to make inferences. These are inferences are things where you make judgments on things you can't directly see. And in most cases, these inferences are correct, but occasionally you make misconceptions. Now, education comes along and says, actually, you know, you're wrong. This is the way the world really is. But you never truly abandon those earlier notions because they were derived at 
by mechanisms which are different to the ones which work when you're getting education. So um, when the second way of learning about the world is compromised through damage or workload, then you can easily flip back into this way of thinking. Now, we know this is the case in superstition because you can put people under a lot of pressure and they start reverting back to their little routines or things which they think can give them control. So, yeah, I think uh, all of us kind of have two ways of thinking about, about the world. Some of us are more inclined towards our intuitive, rapid way of thinking. Others would like to rely on the more logical, slow, methodical way of thinking. But when you put them up against each other, intuition can often win out. Right. Isn't, isn't this a reflection of how organisms in general in the, learn about the world? They form these very rapid models of the world, and then it takes quite a bit to actually perturb that model. Um, well, that's a, that's a good point. That's a comparative issue. Well, I think the secondary system, you know, the one which is sort of logical, there, there is some evidence that other species can do that, but they're, cer they're certainly not as good as, as humans can do. And we know from the comparisons on the intuitive tasks that we share a lot of our capability with our primate cousins. So there have been studies with monkeys and chimpanzees and apes using exactly the paradigm I was telling you about, this kind of magic trick paradigm. And they will also look longer at violations. Now, here's the interesting point. These animals generally don't become tool makers. So, for example, if you understand a violation of the physical law of solidity, okay, that you know that solid objects have certain properties that determine that they're solid, this might be a way of uh, making tools and understanding how to build tools and so forth. Now, the monkeys and the chimps certainly do tool use, but many monkey species don't, and yet they still seem to have this ability to detect these things. So it's a speculation, but maybe what happened in the evolution is that somehow we had developed this, an additional set of skills which allowed us to take this intuitive knowledge and then really recruit it up into a more conscious way of thinking about the world, which could have been a forerunner to, to tool use. It's a speculation that you know, I'm wildly throwing out there, but it's an interesting issue. <laughs> Uh, well, in the book, you talk a lot about different forms that these superstitious beliefs can take. Uh, one of the more interesting ones is personification of inanimate objects. Mm. Yeah, anthropomorphism is the other term. that uh, it can, Personification is generally with, the, with objects, as you say, but an, an anthropomorphism is when we, we give human qualities to things which don't actually deserve that. Dan Dennett, the philosopher, also made this point. He says sometimes we take the intentional stance, so we see things as having intentions, like your computer deliberately kind of fouling up when you're trying to get that report in, or your your car breaking on the way down, you know, on the way to the interview. And it's just so easy to do. It might just be our default when we're interacting with other things to kind of treat them as if they had minds. But certainly this tendency to see animacy, to, to personify things, has been recognized for a long time. The great Scottish philosopher David Hume talked about seeing armies in the clouds and faces in the moon. And certainly when you walk out into the natural world, if you go out into any of the national parks or anything, you'll see rock formations or you'll see configurations of nature which look as if they have faces. And some of the earliest prehistorical evidence of people who have gone down into the caves and looked at the art which has been formed against the walls, clearly these early artists recognized patterns in the natural rock formation that they then highlighted to produce these images. Now, one of the things about faces is that we know that the brain is hardwired for detecting face-like configurations, you know, two eyes and the mouth. And uh, whenever you see that, it might be on the front of a car, it could be on a, the front of a computer, you rapidly see faces. And that's why we see the faces in the moon and the faces on Mars. We just naturally incline, tripwired, if you like, to, to, to see these things. And then it's not a great leap to then kind of assume that maybe there's something out there watching you. Uh, one of the uh, other idea that the belongings of other people maintain some attribute of the person that used to own it. One of the stories you talk about is the idea that uh, getting a transplant from, say, a murderer might be very repulsive to a lot of people. 
Yeah, there was an interesting case about four years ago, a young girl with a cardiac failure, 15-year-old. They had to put a court order on her to force her to have a heart transplant to save her life. And the reason that she didn't want to do it was she was so terrified she was going to lose her personality. So in her mind, the personality of the donor would have taken over hers herself. Apparently, one in three, one in three transplant patients are concerned that their personality is changed by the organ because they think that some psychological property has somehow been transferred. So it's, it's very true in the case of that kind of incorporation. But also, I think the same sort of reasoning also explains our attitude towards certain objects. Um, I call these sacred objects in the sense that they're objects which invoke some emotional kind of reaction. Now, if it's somebody like you know, Mr. Rogers' cardigan, uh, he was such a loved character. There was a study done that unfortunately didn't reach publication, but they did a study and they asked adults about what they thought would happen when someone put on Mr. Rogers' cardigan. And they said, well, they'd be happier, they'd get better, they'd be a nicer person. But of course, the flip side of that is what happens if you put on Jeffrey Dahmer's cardigan. And of course, everyone assumes that you know, you're contaminated with evil. We call this essentialism, by the way, that there's an essence that can somehow transfer and contaminate the physical world. This kind of essentialism, I think, explains our attitudes towards certain types of objects. I think it explains a lot of memorabilia obsession, why people want to touch and own and you know, have physical contact with things. And I think this is psychological essentialism. I think it's just over-applying this idea that somehow somebody can transfer into their physical belongings. You know, and one of the questions is, why do we still think like this in this modern era? We've got all these incredible advances through technology and science and so forth. Why would anyone want to, to believe in the supernatural? I think there's more than one answer to that. I think the supernatural obviously addresses issues about existentialist existence. Why am I here? What happens when I die? You know, those are, for some people, the idea of life after death or ghosts or hauntings and so forth kind of satisfies this idea of continuity that we, we don't go in and out of existence. Uh, other reasons for why you might have belief that rituals or totems or certain acts might be beneficial is that there's this notion that ritual provides a control, a sense of control over the uncontrollable. By doing something, you're, you're kind of influencing the gods. There's a classic study, just to tell you for a moment, there was a study done by Malinsky or Malinowski on islanders in the Tropinan Islands about 100 years ago. And he examined their various rituals of fishing. And when they were fishing in the inlets, which was a relatively safe occupation, they didn't bother with any ritual. But as soon as they went into the open seas, which was fraught with danger and the possibility of drowning, then they had all these superstitious rituals that they had to engage in. And if you look around today in any high-risk profession, you know, it might be firefighting or something where there's a lot of potential harm, then it's very common to find superstitious behaviors. Likewise, in situations in uh, athletics or sport where people, you know, you want to control the outcome, you want a bit of luck, you find that sportsmen are also highly, highly superstitious as well. So there is this issue that superstition or supernatural beliefs address existential questions. They can also give you a feeling or give you something to do to control your environment. But I think there's a third reason. This is the one that is novel in many ways and the one that I really focus the whole book around. And that is the idea that having these belief systems helps us engage in this idea of a sacred species. And what I mean by that is that for societies or groups to cohere, we have to buy into the possibility that there is this additional dimension to reality, that maybe a building is sacred or maybe a book is so special that it transcends any kind of mundane kind of thing. In other words, we're sort of giving ourselves into the communal assessment that there are some things which money can't buy that can't be reduced to any earthly value. And for something to be irreplaceable, to be so special, 
that it has this, this miraculous power, it has to have supernatural qualities. So the super sense that, there's, that these things, these powers, these energies, these forces operating make that kind of reasoning very plausible. And anyone who violates that is an outgroup member. So a temple can be violated by outgroup members, but for those members who are part of that group, it is special and sacred, and it achieves that through this belief in the supernatural. I see. So in, in a sense, it binds societies together, and it's, as a result, can't be given away as yeah. part of our human biology. Yeah, so even the richest man in the group, even the most uh, successful entrepreneur, even the most successful businessman, even he can't buy or control the sacred. That's the point. Everyone is on an on a equal footing when you have sacred values in society. Otherwise, then anyone can easily copy it or replace it or duplicate it, and that will, you know, the sacred thing disappears, and so the, the group cohesion loses its, you know, its value. So that's, that's what I think is going on. I think that's at least one of the explanations that I've been putting forward. Hmm. Uh, perhaps a reason why it's uh, been maintained so long in uh, human biology? I mean, if it works for group cohesion and it works to alleviate stress and it makes people uh, want to live longer, then sure, yeah, these are all good reasons for such beliefs to take hold. Hmm. Uh, I'm curious, how did you yourself become interested in this issue? Well, I was fascinated as a child about um, the possibility of the paranormal. I mean, like many people my age, I saw Yuri Geller and uh, these people in the 70s and 80s appear on television. Uh, I wanted to believe it was real. And then I went to university to look for the evidence and discovered to my disappointment that whilst there's been a lot of work to study the paranormal, the evidence is so elusive and it really does beggar belief. And, and yet, and this is the interesting point, although the evidence is equivocal, the belief that it's real is so powerful. So if you look across the U.S. or indeed in Europe, you find groups who are ghost hunters, beliefs in the paranormal. Any of this television on the possibility of the paranormal is extraordinarily popular. So the evidence for it is so weak, and yet we all want to believe. So I got really interested in that and didn't do much more to try and pursue, you know, is there any reliable evidence for the paranormal? I got interested in the mind, and I got interested in where the mind comes from, and, you know, how does it generate knowledge? And so I got interested in children and how children develop and how they begin to understand the world. And it's this process of understanding the world I've been working on for the past 20 years. But in the past five years, I started to realize that the same mechanisms which lead them to come up with the natural explanations of the world can sometimes lead them to misconceptions. And it was those misconceptions I recognized could be seen to be the basis for a whole manner of adult supernatural beliefs. You know, the idea, for example, that the mind exists independently of the body. That's something that children naturally assume. Of course, that's the basis for what we call mind-body dualism. Now, if you accept that position, then if the mind can exist independently of the body, then it's not constrained by the same physical laws. So it can move through time, it can move through space, and it can live on after the body goes. So when you kind of look at these natural ways of thinking, you can see all sorts of basis for adult beliefs. Another one is uh, creationism. Children, when you ask them why the natural world is the way that it is, they assume that someone's made it like that. They assume it's been designed deliberately. Trees were put there by someone for a good reason. So this makes it very easy for them to be inclined towards creationism. So in every um, realm of, of this natural intuitive reasoning, you find, to all intents and purposes, very good logic, but things which could lead to adult belief. So many of the roots of these sorts of things arise in childhood. I think so, and I think a culture does play a role. I mean, Richard Dawkins, of course, is a great critic of religion and supernatural, and he's, he's heads up a whole neo-atheist movement. And whilst I, I agree with many of their principles, I think the logic of the argument is undermined by the fact that we can't simply be blank slates. 
because we have to interpret what we're told in a certain extent. And the ideas which seem to be universal, that seem to be shared by so many people across the world, are very, very similar. And I think that's because they resonate which, with these natural inclinations that we're born with, which are a byproduct of the way that the brain interprets the natural world. Well, this is really a very fascinating subject. Unfortunately, it looks like we're running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if maybe you have some final words regarding the whole very fascinating subject. Well, I think the first thing we do is that we recognize that these are natural and not be uh, so condescending or condemning of people who have their beliefs. And in fact, I think this capacity for seeing significance and patterns actually could be quite useful if you want to be creative. So I don't think it's any coincidence that the more artistic amongst us are also the ones who are more inclined to believing in the supernatural, and I think that's because they, they see significance. The rest of us, us rationalists, are more kind of dismissive. We can't see the trees of the woods sort of thing. So we have two ways of looking at the world, and we need people with this ability to harness creativity and to see it. So I, I, I don't necessarily think it's uh, willy thinking or weakness. I think it's actually quite beneficial. So I think for the final, you know, my, my parting shot would be that uh, recognize that, you know, we all have it to a certain extent. Some of us have it more and uh, to celebrate it rather than condemning it. Well, again, it's a very fascinating book. Uh, the new book is called Super Sense, Why We Believe in the Unbelievable. Dr. Hood, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. You're very welcome. And you were just listening to Dr. Bruce Hood discussing Super Sense. This is the Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Oh, I could hide the wings of the bluebird as she sings the six o'clock alarm would never ring but it rings and I rise wipe the sleep out of mind my shaven razor's cold and it stings Cheer up Time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic supernatural or just run of the mill. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would rate them as supernatural or just run of the mill and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Dr. Hood, you ready to play the game? Well, you, you'll have to tell me if I don't know the person. So yes, let's have a go. Okay, very good. <laughs> All right, well, person number one is the real estate mogul Donald Trump. Ah, I think a very calculating mind. I would put him very much on the rational side of things. <laughs> he reads people very well. I think he's very, uh, very talented. Indeed. All right, number two is the golfer, Tiger Woods. Oh, very supernatural. That's a well-known. He always wears a red shirt on uh, Sunday. And it seems to work for him. Yeah, well, there you go. You see, that's the thing about superstition. You can't knock it. <laughs> All right, uh, number three is the uh, psychic Yuri Geller. Ah, uh, well, clearly he's very much inclined to the... I think he believes that he has power. I don't think he really is such a fake that everyone makes him out to be. I think he really is convinced by his own ability. So, yes, he's very much supernatural. Hmm. Uh, number four is James Randi. James Randi, of course. He is the uh, the doyen of the rationalists. <laughs> Lucky for us, that that's the case. <laughs> mm-hmm. And finally, number five, it's the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Well, now I think he's an interesting mix. 
I think uh, I wouldn't put him one camp or the other uh, because we do know he has uh, superstitious rituals of playing the basketball on every day of the primaries. And we do know that he carries around some tokens for him. But he also seems to be able to balance that kind of intuitive supernatural thing with uh, a cool head, as it were. So um, he might be an example of someone who seems to have come or who's at peace with uh, the two sides of his personality. <laughs> so I'll, I'll put him in the middle. All right. Again, the name of your book is Super Sense, Why We Believe in the Unbelievable. And uh, Dr. Hood, I want to thank you very much for sticking around and playing a game and, of course, talking about uh, the very fascinating book. You're very welcome. And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok Science, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.